Well, good morning to each of you. It's good to be back together. I thought Derek gave a good introduction of what we were doing. It's a little unique to have so many new people in an audience halfway through uh, a series. So I apologize to you for those of you who are here for the first time. You're going to have missed something and you're going to have to try to catch up quickly, I guess, mentally. Hopefully you'll understand when we're finished where we're going. The purpose of this session, really, or this weekend for me, is to establish in the hearts of you as young people the reason why you are here, why you live, why you live the way you live. And I shared with the young people a burden that I have personally, that I've observed many people leaving what they were taught, leaving what I would call practical, biblical, conservative Christianity. And maybe you don't like some of those words, that's okay, but in other words, what I'm saying is when your Christian testimony, your Christian life impacts the way you live in everyday life. If it doesn't, then it's really just a, a lip expression and has no meaning. So my desire is that each of us would have a desire or a a deep understanding of why we live the way we do. I greet you again this morning in the precious name of Jesus. I'd like you just to turn to a verse in Revelation 3, verse 21. One of my many favorite verses. Jesus Christ, I greet you in his name, is the one who says here in Revelation 3, 21, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. One day, for each of us, if we are faithful to him, if we overcome the world, our sinful desires, and the devil, by Jesus Christ, we will have the blessed privilege of sitting with him in his throne. I'm looking forward to that. That'll be a pretty exciting time. And I'll share. You can each have a spot there. That's okay with me. But I, I'm tremendously blessed to think about a day when we can leave behind many of the struggles we face in this life and sit down with him on the throne of victory. Well, we did look at a number of principles yesterday, and we do have two more I think I covered six yesterday. Maybe Derek nodded off for one of them, but that's okay. We're going to do two more this morning. The first one I want to look at is the principle of purity. In Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start looking at a few scriptures. Matthew 5, verse 8. Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart, free from iniquity, hearts that love God and love fellow men, hearts that have no desire for the things of this world, the corruption that is all around us, hearts that love what God loves, that do what God does, that pursue the things of God, that love thy kingdom, Lord, as we sing. Pure in heart. Look at what it says. They shall see God. 
There's a lot of wonderful things promised about what heaven will be like. There's a lot of things about heaven that I look forward to. Rest, freedom from worry and pain and sickness and strife and all of those things are wonderful to think about. The beauties, the splendor of what will be like there. But there's one thing that I look forward to most, and that is seeing God. We couldn't comprehend him with our physical eyes. We can't see him with these eyes. But one day we will see him. And if you know what? The pure in heart will see God. That's the reward of the pure in heart. <clears throat> Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. It says, flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Flee youthful lusts. Let me just say, young people, that youthful lusts don't disappear when you get to be my age. I suspect they don't disappear when you get to be 70 or 80 either. But one thing is very true, many of the desires of our hearts, we have to recognize, don't lead us closer to God. And that's why the Bible says that we need to flee from youthful lusts. Because they lead us away from the things that he says next, that we need to follow, righteousness, faith, charity, and peace. And notice, when we follow those things, when we pursue those things instead of the youthful lusts, we're going to find a group of people there who are doing the same thing, and he gives us a description of those people. And what are those people going to be like? They're those who have a pure heart. A pure heart. Purity. Principle of purity. Titus 1, 15. It says, Under the pure all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. I want you to notice from this verse that this principle of purity is a pervading per principle. In other words, it, it affects all of your life, every part. Either you're pure in heart and you're pure in mind and you're pure in life, or you're impure and everything about you is impure or pure. You see, when we are defiled or impure, then everything about us is impure. Even the things that could be good and might be good in themselves are not good for you because there's impurity in you. So this principle of purity is a, is a foundational core principle to who we are as Christians. We need to live in purity. 1 Peter 1, verse 22 Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Seeing that you have purified 
your souls. How does purity come into our lives? How are we purified? How does that happen? What well, tells us right here in this verse? It says, through, sorry, in obeying the truth. How will you be changed in the way you think? How will you be led away from youthful lusts to follow righteousness and those other things we read about? How will that happen? It will happen because you read, know, think about, remember we're thinking Christians, and understand and live out, obey the truth. That's how it will happen. So friends, if you're struggling with impurity in your life, you know what the cure is? The Word of God. Obeying the truth. And how does obeying the truth happen? It happens, what does it say? Through the spirits. This might be a little hard for some of you to believe, but it's true. When I was your age, many of you, 17, 18 years old, I was fairly new to the scriptures. I grew up in a church where, I don't know if it was my fault or the church's fault, I'm not saying, probably my fault, but I didn't learn a lot about the scriptures. I started attending the church where I'm now pastoring when I was 14, and I didn't know a lot more about the Bible than the stories of David and Moses and some of those children's stories. But I started attending Sunday school there, and the Word of God was, it, I was like a sponge. It just, it, I was soaking it up. But there was a time in my life, in 17, 18 years old, where I really found it really difficult to study the Bible. I found it really difficult to understand what the Word means. I found it hard. I felt like there was, there was a difference or disconnect between me and the Word. I found it hard to understand. And friends, I don't find it that way today, okay? You know what's changed? A lot of discipline and study, that's part of it. But you know what happens? The Spirit of God, the great revealer of truth, comes into our lives and opens our eyes to understand the Scripture. But it only happens for those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. You see, you won't understand the Bible. You won't understand, like we talked about, comprehending how the principles fit together and how they apply to daily life. You won't understand that without a dis disciplined desire to know. But when that desire is there, then the Holy Spirit of God comes to reveal truth to you. It's like he's standing there on your shoulder and he's whispering in your ear, telling you exactly what that means and how it connects with that verse over there in the Scripture. And the Word of God becomes a living Word. That's the single greatest purpose for the Holy Spirit to be here this morning and the single greatest purpose for the Holy Spirit to be in the world, in the world today, in Christians' lives. He is the revealer of truth. That's how we purify our hearts. And you know what happens when we have pure hearts? Notice what this verse says. There's an unfeigned love of the brethren. In other words, there's a pure love. Uh, not a hypocritical love or not a pretentious love, but a pure love for each other. And you know what, friends? There's only one place where we can have a pure love of brethren. It's when you have people who have been purified through the Word by the Spirit in together in fellowship. That's the only place where there's fellowship. 
Whenever we try to have fellowship outside of a place where all are submitted to the will and word of God, we can't have true fellowship. It only happens after people are redeemed and changed, transformed by the word of God. Pure hearts. Purity as a principle of life. One more scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Having therefore these promises, just one of the promises is the one we read in the opening, that those who overcome will have the privilege of sitting with him in his throne. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's purity. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Cleansing ourselves from all filthiness. And not much left out there. All filthiness. All filthiness of thought. Filthiness of life. It ought to... Great on us to live in this corrupt society. Is that how it is for you? It shouldn't feel like home. It shouldn't feel comfortable. The desire of the true Christian is to cleanse himself from all uncleanness, all filthiness, and to be perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We've talked a lot about why do you do it. And often in the conversation about a certain application or a certain guideline or why a certain practice, I hear the question, what's wrong with it? You ever heard that question before? You ever used that question before? Someone wants to do something and someone else is telling them not to do it and they say, what's wrong with it? Let me tell you something. The first thing that's wrong with it is that question. Think with me. What's wrong with it implies that I want to live as far from perfection as I possibly can. Do you understand that? If this is a center point of perfection, of perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The question of what's wrong with it is a question of how far away can I be from perfecting holiness and still be acceptable to God? That's a wrong question. That reveals a wrong desire. That reveals a problem of the principle of purity in the life. And friends, I've asked that question myself. But when I stop and think about what that question really says, we ought not to be asking what's wrong with it. We ought to be asking what's right with it. How is it leading me closer to the perfection of holiness in the fear of God? And when there's things in our lives, young people and older people, all of us, who are drawing us further away from this perfection in the holiness and the fear of God, when they're drawing us away from that, they stand in the way of us becoming what God wants us to be. The principle of purity will draw us to that point, closer and closer to perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 
So don't ask the question, what's wrong with it? The first thing that's wrong with that question is the question itself. What is purity? Let me just give you a few definitions in my own words. It's looking to God for our standards. It's freedom from all, again there's that word all, corruption. It's the absence of any contamination. It's complete. It's whole. It's unmixed. If we pursued purity with all our hearts, what would all change in our lives? Purity is a principle of the Christian. Principle that will be applied in a life that finds true purpose. I'll give you a few examples of purity. And I hesitate to use this one because it's focused so much on the sexual arena. And understand, young people, that is an important area of purity, okay? That is important. But it's not the only part of our lives where purity impacts what we do. It's not the only area, not even close. Purity affects everything about you. But think about Joseph. They're in a faraway land, several years removed from his family. He wasn't checking up on them on Facebook every week. He wasn't sending them emails. He'd never heard from anyone from Israel. He didn't even know if his family was still alive. He probably didn't really believe that he would ever see them again, or he had no reason to know that he would. There he is, living in a faraway land, now integrated as much as he could and maintain his principles into the culture of the Egyptians. You remember when the, the children of Israel, his brothers, and finally came there to Egypt, they didn't recognize him because he looked like an Egyptian. So he's living there, integrated in that culture. And he was working one day as a faithful servant in Potiphar's house. And you remember the story. Potiphar's wife, probably for weeks already, had been making advances against him. He's a 17-year-old young man. Day after day, she's trying to make advances on him. Why did Joseph resist that? Why did he say no? And why did he ultimately flee, leaving his garment in her hand, and he spent years in prison for that choice? Why? Because of the principle of purity in Joseph's heart. That's why. Because, friends, I guarantee you that Potiphar's wife was a good-looking woman. I guarantee you that she knew how to appeal to Joseph's flesh. But there was something more powerful in Joseph than his flesh. That's, pur that's purity. It's a principle that needs to pervade our lives. A very, very different example of purity I want you to go to the book of Acts for a moment. I love this story. I had to throw it in somewhere. I think it kind of fits here. So we're going to use it. Peter and John, after Pentecost, they healed that man that was lame and was sitting there at the gate beautiful going into the temple. 
And they told him that in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he should rise up and walk. That's in chapter 3. Then Peter uh, preached a powerful sermon again, his second sermon, in just a few days. And he's emphasizing over and over the name of Jesus Christ, the power in the name of Jesus Christ. If you look at chapter 3, verse 16, you'll notice here the emphasis on the name. And his name, that's the name of Jesus, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So he's preaching in the name of Jesus. He's preaching a power in the name of Jesus. In chapter 4, you'll notice they are imprisoned. They are captured by the guards. They can't have this uprising that's going on. This phenomenon, this Christianity that's taking root there. They, don't, they can't have it. Then before the high priest, Peter, in chapter 4, verse 10, he says to the council there, Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand be there, here before you whole. Notice verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven among, given among men whereby ye must be saved. The Jewish leaders hated Jesus. They hated Jesus' name. Peter and John are lifting up this name. They're saying this name is the one that has given the power to this man who is now walking around. And, they, and you see in verse 16, these council is gathered now and conferring, and they're saying, what shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest or shown to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. What they're saying is something really did happen here. Something really was profound and powerful. We can't deny that. So what are we going to do? What did they do? Verse 18, they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Don't say another thing about the name of Jesus. We'll let you go. You can live your life. But keep that Jesus guy to yourself, okay? Being let go, verse 23, this is powerful here. They went to their own company. So they go to the church. And they reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. In other words, they were imprisoned. They were beaten. They were released. And now they're standing in front of the church and they're saying, Guys, they threatened us. They told us not to talk about the name of Jesus. On and on. What would the church do? I wonder what would happen in our churches today. How will they respond? Look at what it says here. When they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. This is a church. And said, what is their prayer? God, keep them safe. God, don't let them get in trouble. Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. And they go on in the prayer, but notice in verse 29, verse 29, And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of the Holy Child Jesus. What was the church's prayer? 
That these men would continue in purity preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was their prayer. Is that your prayer for your leaders? That they will continue no matter what happens in their lives to proclaim boldly the name of Jesus Christ. You know what? If there was more of Jesus, there'd be more notable miracles. When there's more notable miracles, there's more glory to God in heaven. But that's not the end of the story. The disciples continue preaching. And we find again in chapter 5, verse 17, and on from there, that once again the disciples are taken into cap captured, brought before the Jewish leaders. In verse 28, they remind them, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And then you have Gamaliel warning the council there later on in after verse 33 throughout there, that if they continue... They will be fighting against God. If it's really of God, you can't overthrow it. Verse 40, what did they do? To him, and to him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, remember the prayer of the church for these disciples? Look at verse 41 and 42. And they departed from the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name, and daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Friends, that's purity. In every situation, in every opportunity, they continued to proclaim the name of Jesus. One more example. You might not have expected ever to see David's name in front of you when we're talking about purity. As you all know, David made some terrible mistakes in his life. But the Bible also refers to David as a man after God's own heart. And if you turn with me to Psalm 51, the psalm that records David's response to being ultimately found out and confronted by Nathan about his sin with Bathsheba, I want you to notice a few things, and just sharing this example with you to give us courage and comfort, not so you go about sinning, that's not the point, but there is not one of us in this room who is perfect, and we have all made mistakes, we have all gone astray, and there is a response that brings us back to a place of purity from that time, and here you'll see Notice in verse 2 how much of a personal responsibility David takes for his sin. He says, Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Notice verse 7 through 10. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Here it is. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not that Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirits. 
There is a place. There is a way. From a place of sin to a place of purity. It's the path of repentance. It's the path that David walked. It's the desire and the pleading out to God to create in a broken, sinful man a clean heart. That's how David continued to be a man after God's own heart. We're going to continue on this morning. I gave you opportunity to share yesterday. I'm going to skip that this morning if that's okay. I hope you're still thinking and I hope you're still coming up with ideas in your own mind of how purity affects your life. The last principle we want to look at is the principle of forgiveness. And we're going to look at a few scriptures again. Matthew 6. In the Lord's Prayer here, what we call the Lord's Prayer. In verse 12 it says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's a prayer to forgive, a prayer for forgiveness. Notice verse 14 and 15, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Some time ago now I was preaching on those two verses and I was pointing out the, what I believe is very clearly the biblical truth that when we refuse to forgive others, God also removes a forgiveness that we've experienced from our lives. We can't be forgiven unless we forgive. And I was emphasizing that point and making the point that if we hold on to unforgiveness in our hearts, we cannot be right with God. We lose our salvation when we refuse to forgive another. That's one of the things that happens in unforgiveness. And a man stood up in the audience and disagreed with me right there in the service. I never had that happen before. I don't hope I'm going to have it happen here this morning. It's kind of awkward. But you know what? You can read it for yourself. You can interpret it for yourself. To me, it's crystal clear that the Bible says that unless we forgive, we can't be forgiven. It's kind of hard to believe in eternal security and make that fit. You know? Anyway, that's one verse. Let's look at Matthew 18. Jesus tells a story here. First of all, you have where Peter comes and asks Jesus the question, Matthew 18, verse 21. How often shall I forgive my brother against me? Till seven times? It's interesting if you study that scripture, you'll discover that the Pharisees, or maybe not the Pharisees, but some of the leading rabbis of that time understood a little bit about the principle of forgiveness. And they taught that you should forgive a brother or someone who sins against you three times, okay? If they do it three times, the third time you forgive them. If they do it fourth, fourth time, well, something's very wrong with them, so you don't, you're not required to forgive them anymore. So I'm sure Peter was thinking, well, I know Jesus' standard is higher than those other Pharisee or leading rabbis. So how about I double it plus one, and I'll go for that. I'll ask Jesus how many times, maybe seven times. That's a lot. Right? <laughs> How would it be if I got David up here and I punched him in the nose, okay? Then I said, I'm sorry. He'd forgive me. What if I did it again? 
And I said, I'm sorry. And again, and again, and again. Seven times. Get harder to forgive me, wouldn't it? Yeah. I won't do that. What does Jesus say? Not seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, I don't know how many of you have a, a, a board at home where you're keeping track, and some of your brothers are up to about 350 times, and when they get to 491, that's going to be the end for them. If you are, you're missing the point, okay? Jesus' point is not about how many times, but that the principle of forgiveness... Us forgiving others is a, a permanent, forever principle, okay? It's always. There's never a thing that a Christian, another person, anyone could do to you that you wouldn't need to forgive. There's nothing. And I don't say that lightly. I understand that people do some horrible things to other people. <clears throat> this story, you have two servants. <clears throat> One servant who's brought before the king and owes him 10,000 talents. You see that in verse 24. In our money, that's about $15 billion. That's B, billion. That's a lot of money. I have no idea how this man could manage to run up such a debt. And I think that's part of the point. It's an impossibly huge debt. In fact, just to give you a little perspective, if in the very beginning of creation... Cain and Abel, or Adam and Eve, would have started a very prosperous business, okay? And every year since creation, 6,000 years time, they would have made two and a half million dollars. You'd have about 15 billion today. That's a big number, okay? I don't know how many sheep you could have sold in that time to make two and a half million. I'd been a tough go, all right? The debt was massive. And this servant is in front of the king and begging, pleading, forgive me, or sorry, have patience with me. I'm going to pay it all. You know how ridiculous that statement was? You're going to pay it all, really. When is that going to be? He wasn't going to pay it all. He couldn't pay it all. And you know what his master did? He had mercy on him, and he forgave him all the debt. Now, you know what that illustrates, right? God's forgiveness for us. You see, if we would start writing every sin that I've committed in my lifetime on the walls up here, you could probably write as small as you could ever write, and you couldn't fit them all on this front wall. The more I understand about the holiness of God, the more I realize how sinful a man I am. And what does Jesus do? He forgives you all the debts. Now, in this story, that same servant who had just been forgiven a $15 billion debt, you think he walked out the door a little taller than when he came in? I think he did. What is the first thing he does? Hey, I remember there's a servant over there that owes me some money. That's, by the way, equivalent to about a third of a year's wages or maybe $15,000. Still a significant amount of money. He goes to the other servant... And the same scenario happens. This servant begs for mercy as well. He says, have patience with me and I'll pay you all. But what did he do? He grabs him by the neck 
And he says to him, pay me what thou owest. Now here's a man who, if you would have looked at his balance sheet just an hour before, there was a $15 billion debt on one side, and there was an asset of a $15,000 loan on the other side, okay? There, it's basically insignificant. There's only one number on that page that mattered, and that number had just been wiped away. The servant goes out, finds his fellow servant, and grabs him by the neck and insists that he pays. And what does the Lord that had forgiven him all the debt do? When he finds out about it from the other servants, he calls him back in. And you know the rest of the story. By the way, I believe it's another illustration of what happens when we don't forgive others. Suddenly all those things that I have been forgiven for on the wall are back in play when I don't forgive others. You can see in that story very easily how ridiculous it was for that servant not to forgive. He was still ahead. I don't have the number in my mind quick, but he was over $14 billion ahead of what he had been an hour ago, even if he forgave that debt. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, I say to the glory of God, and in utter humility, that whenever I see myself before God and realize even something of what my blessed Lord has done for me, I am ready to forgive anybody, anything. That's the point. That's the truth. When you understand even a little bit of what God has done for you in His mercy through Jesus Christ, then you will be ready to forgive others for what they have done to you. Because no matter how terrible the thing they've done to you, and some of them are terrible, it doesn't compare to what you have done to a holy God. looks just as foolish as the servant who went out and grabbed his fellow servant by the neck. Forgiveness. Colossians 3, verse 13. It says here, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Forgiving one another. You have the same thought in Ephesians 4. We won't take the time to turn to it there. Forgiving one another. I want you to notice that here in this phrase, we have the truth that forgiveness is not only an act, but a pervading attitude of the Christian. In other words, you are predisposed as a Christian to forgive others. What that means is that when you come up against a situation where you are hurt, you are already tending towards forgiveness because you are a forgiving person. There is a forgiveness principle that governs who you are and how you conduct your life. And friends, that will transform the way you live and the way you approach situations where there's conflict when you come from a principle of forgiveness. When you go into a situation knowing that no matter what they do to me, I'm already going to forgive them, it changes the way you act. Principles, sorry, forgiveness is not only an act, but it's an attitude. It's a principle. It's a governing force of how we live our lives. What is forgiveness? 
well, I think you know what forgiveness is. It's to release a debt. It's to free or pardon from penalty. And there's a lot of good quotes about forgiveness. I like this one. I think it captures forgiveness. And I forgot to write down who the quote is from. A lily someone. I can't remember her last name. She says, Forgiveness means giving up all hope for a better past. You think about that for a little bit. Here we sit in 2016, March, uh, what is it today, the 20th, 21st, lost track. Nothing behind you is ever going to change. You understand that? Forgiveness coming from the power of Almighty God gives you the power to stand here today and to look forward and to move forward and to give up all hope of ever having a better past. You will never have a better past, but there are hosts of people who mire through life in a miserable existence because they keep on trying to make the past better. They keep on wishing somehow the past would get better. They keep on wishing someone would get persecuted for their past or someone would get hurt, or someone would pay. Friends, it'll never change. The only person who will be miserable is you. Forgiveness means giving up all hope for a better past. Well, those were supposed to come one at a time, but they didn't. Let me give you a few examples of forgiveness. Joseph, what a story. If there was ever a man who should have been mired in bitterness and self-pity sitting in a prison cell in the bottom of an Egyptian junked dungeon, if I can speak, it should have been Joseph. But he didn't. And it's incredible, the story. I don't have time to turn there, but you can look at it on your own. The power of forgiveness in his life. He told his brothers... That they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. What a transformation of perspective. From being thrown in a pit, sold by your brothers, sold off into Egypt, treated as a slave throughout his life. Many, many bad things happened to Joseph. But he says, God meant it for good. That's what forgiveness does. And the interesting part of that story is his brothers could hardly believe that he would forgive them. And 15 years after he had forgiven them the first time, when their father had died, they were afraid that now Joseph is going to seek revenge, going to come after us. And you can find the story in Genesis 50, where Joseph says to his brothers, he's weeping, and he says, no, 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 you don't understand. I forgave you, in my own words. I'm not going to come back after you. There's nothing that you owe me. God meant it for good. And he says a very profound thing. He says, am I in the place of God?" You think about that. God will avenge. God is the ultimate judge of what is right and what is wrong. And when we stand up and we try to hold someone accountable for what they did against us, we're standing up in the place of God. And Joseph says, not me. Am I in the place of God? I won't do it. He forgave. Stephen. You remember Stephen when he was stoned? 
preached a powerful message of Jesus Christ to the, to the council, and they wouldn't have any of it. And they took him out and stoned him. And as the rocks are hitting him in the head and in the face, and he's bleeding and dying a horrible death, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I'll tell you quickly about Rudy Tomjanovich. He was a basketball player's player in the late 70s. And in a basketball game, he got into a skirmish with another player who was pushing and shoving and carrying on. Actually, let me back up. Kermit Washington got into that scuffle, close to center court. Rudy Tomjanovich was at the other end of the court, and he saw his teammate pushing with Kermit, and he came racing down the floor, and Kermit is there like this, pushing with him, and just as Kermit sees Rudy coming full speed out of the corner of his eye here, and just as he's approaching, Kermit turns and punches like this into Rudy's face, and it's known ever since as the punch. Kermit Washington was a big, strong man. He hit Rudy in the face, in the jaw, broke his jaw, broke his mouth, broke his nose. He had about six months in the hospital and reconstructive surgeries. Horrible destruction. It was basically the end of Rudy's basketball career. And you know it was a different time in history because a reporter asked Rudy, can you forgive Kermit for what he did to you? And Kermit said, or Rudy said something powerful as well. He said, if I don't forgive, it's like drinking poison and hoping someone else will die. That's what happens when we hold on to unforgiveness. It's like drinking poison and hoping someone else will die. Well, you know the story of Corrie ten Boom, many of you. She was in time of Nazi Germany, helped many Jews escape from the Nazis, ended up in a, in a prison camp with her sister. Her sister was killed there. She experienced a lot of torture, terrible times, and by an act of God, I believe, I think she would say the same, and a mistake in the record-keeping of the, of the Germans, she was released just a few days before every other woman in her place there were sent off to the gas chambers to be killed. And she, ex she is a living example of forgiveness. And in one of the sessions where she was speaking a few years later, after the war, speaking about her experiences and speaking about the power of forgiveness, one of the guards who had been a guard at the camp where she was held, a Nazi guard, who had now become a Christian, was in that room. And she saw him after the service, after she was finished speaking, and she described it as a cold chill going through her. She recognized him immediately. He was one of the guards who had been very cruel to her and to her sister. And as she left, this guard approached, or as she walked to the back, this guard approached her. And he says to her, I don't think he recognized her specifically, but he said, I know God has forgiven me for the tortures that I've committed against many people. Can you forgive me? Can you imagine for a moment what that would be like? 
Corey said it seemed like hours to her, but it was only a few minutes or seconds where she had to make a choice. Would she forgive the man who had been an instrumental part in killing her sister and in torturing her? Trust me, she didn't feel like forgiving. But she says, I knew that I could raise my hand to shake his hand, and I knew God would do the rest. And she says she reached out her hand to shake his hand, and she said, yes, I forgive you. And she says the peace and power that came through her and into her in that moment was like none she could ever describe. It's the power of forgiveness. How could I talk about forgiveness without the example of Jesus? After being tortured, unimaginable torture, and hung on a cross to die the most excruciating, painful death that person has ever experienced. Jesus hanging there in agony and dying says to the Holy Father, the one who rightly brings justice on all men, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We don't have time this morning, but you can sit for a long time under those words and understand a powerful, powerful thing about forgiveness. Forgiveness is a principle that must pervade and guide the life of every Christian. So, there they are. I've given you eight principles. And we had to move quickly. It feels like I just barely scratched the surface in every one. But they are critically important to the life of a Christian. And they will bring you to a place of purpose in life. God-given principles will guide your life. They will lead you in the way everlasting. They will bring you to living life with a purpose. So we return to this question. Or we started back in the first session. Why do you do it? I believe there is these three reasons, three biblical reasons. Obedience, protection, and identity. All of those are important reasons. All of those are good reasons. But as I told the young people and I told you yesterday, I don't think they can be the only reasons. And when we pull out one of those reasons and we pound the pulpit about why we need to do something, I think we're missing a significant point. And for me, I want to give you a fourth reason that gives purpose to all of the things that I do. And I trust that it will give purpose to you as well. The fourth reason is illustration. It's probably not what you were expecting. I'm sure many of you have been trying to figure out what I'm going to say is the fourth reason. And I'm not here to say this morning that it's the only reason. I'm not saying that at all. But for me, it's a very important reason. And let me explain what I mean. Again, I want to look at some scriptures because it doesn't really matter what I think, but it does matter what God says in John chapter 8. Jesus says in verse 8, 
or chapter 8, verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Jesus Christ came into the world full of grace and truth to bring to us what it is to walk in light, what it is to walk with God. Turn over to John 14. And again, I need to move quickly here. Here in verse 9, let me just back up a little bit. Jesus had just said in verse 6 that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you believe that verse, it's a very, very powerful verse. He goes on to say, If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also from whence henceforth ye know him and have seen him. And Philip, one of the disciples, said unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth to us. We want to see God. We want to see what he's like. Show us the Father. And what does Jesus say? In verse 9, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me has seen the Father, and how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am a perfect illustration of God the Father. I am the light that came into the world. That's not hard for you to understand. Not hard for you to believe. Go to Matthew 5. Verse 14. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men put a candle, light a candle and put it under a bushel but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Jesus Christ is not living here on the earth as a man today. You are. You are the light of the world. When people ask the question today, show us the Father, who are they going to look to? You. That's who they look to. Ye are the light of the world. First Peter chapter 2. Verse 9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A peculiar people. Remember that phrase? A peculiar people. Why? That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous lights. The praises of him that you would illustrate and reveal what God is like. That's what he's saying. You are a peculiar people that you would show forth His praise. You are the light of the world. <coughs> and one more verse. In Romans 13. Verse 14. But put ye on the Lord Jesus... 
and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the loss thereof. When you became a Christian, remember I told you, your dead spirit united with God's spirit, God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit came into you and you became a new creation, you were born again, you became a little Christ. The Bible talks about putting on the Lord Jesus. After you get up in the morning and you get clothed with humility, the next thing you put on is Jesus Christ, okay? Actually, maybe in reverse, but I told you yesterday to put on humility. You put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do you do that? Because when you walk out of your door, get up in the morning, when you start thinking for the day, you are thinking and representing Jesus Christ. You are an illustration of who Jesus is, of who God is to the world around you. That's why we do what we do. Key essential point of what we do, why we do it. Friends, this gives purpose for me to life. Why do you get up in the morning? Why do you live different from your neighbors? Why don't you listen to ungodly music? Why don't you have a sexual relationship with your girlfriend? Why don't you do these things? Why, why, why? All the why do you do it? Right there's the answer. Because we have the privilege, the blessed privilege of illustrating what God is like to our neighbors and to those who don't know him. And friends, here's the emphasized point. Principled living. You know, I gave you those eight principles. You live them out in your life and you'll bring glory to God. That's a guaranteed fact, okay? Principled living is the only way to glorify God. The only way. And that's where I'm going to stop for a moment, and then I'll try to explain what I mean by that statement.